Hello and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Evening Bible Studies with your speaker, Chris McCann. If you'd like more information or to hear more studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now, with your evening Bible study, here's Chris McCann. Good evening and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Bible Study in the Book of Revelation. Tonight is study number 11 of Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to be reading verses 9 and 10. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down which accused them before our God day and night. Well, uh, as we have seen before in uh, our previous studies, Revelation 12.9 is speaking of Satan and his binding, which took place at the cross. That's the time he was cast out of heaven. He no longer had access to go before the Lord. And we we also see here, in verse 10, that he was a constant accuser of the brethren. But before we we look at that at the end of verse 10, let's look at the first part of what God has to say here in Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. The first thing named is salvation following the Lord Jesus Christ's entry into the human race and his eventual going to the cross, it was God's plan to save many more people during the New Testament era, the New Testament church age, than he had previously throughout the entire Old Testament. And we we see this right away. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved in one day as Peter preached a sermon. And uh, that just was the beginning of the first fruits, the spiritual first fruits that were brought in during the entire church age. And, and so that's why at this point that the Lord Jesus, the man-child, has been born he has ascended back to heaven, and now the woman has fled into the wilderness where she'll, she will be fed for the 1260 days representing the entire 1955 years of the church age. It, it is during that time that the dragon is cast out of heaven. He has been bound, and, and as a result of his binding, God is now able to uh, send forth the gospel into the world and establish his kingdom through the preaching of his word, which will result in salvation. There will be many more people saved uh, during the church age, even though not as quite as many as we would have thought, but but still far more than had been saved during the Old Testament period of time. 
And, and, and that's why the declaration now has come salvation and strength. Strength is, um, a translation of the Greek word dunamis, which is Strong's number 1411. And the word dunamis is often translated as power. For instance, in Acts 1, Acts chapter 1, in verse 8, it says, and, but ye shall receive power, that's, that's a translation of dunamis, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So the, the power comes and Acts 1 is describing the point in history where the Lord Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And then he says, ye shall receive power. And, and so following that, the Holy Spirit is poured out officially on the day of Pentecost and they receive power as a result to establish God's uh, spiritual kingdom to to bring salvation, uh, the the gospel which will result in salvation. That's also stated in Romans one concerning this word dunamis in verse sixteen. There it says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it that is the gospel. It is the power of God." the dunamis of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the power of God is the gospel unto salvation. And our verse is proclaiming, now is come salvation and power, the power um, unto salvation as the gospel will go forth. And then it goes on to say, and the kingdom of our God, uh, in our verse in Revelation 12.10. Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God. Now, um, early on in Christ's ministry, it was declared the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and now Christ has gone back to heaven. He has ascended after his his life on earth and after his resurrection he has returned to the father in heaven and again it is declared now is come the kingdom of our god and and that's because the kingdom of our god was established early on in Christ's ministry throughout his ministry and after his ministry it is established by the preaching of the word of god and especially when individuals become saved, those elect that, that God has predestinated to hear the gospel and to be born again, and they're added to the kingdom of our God. It's a spiritual kingdom. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 18, in John 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. 
the kingdom of God is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom that um, it cannot be seen with the physical eye, and it is the building up of the elect people of God to form the kingdom. And, of course, now uh, in our present position of living after the tribulation, God has completed the building up of that kingdom. He has saved all of his elect and uh, and and so he's not sending forth the word anymore to to further the kingdom as far as adding souls to it. All right, um, continuing in our verse in Revelation twelve ten, in the kingdom of our God, and the power of His Christ. Now here uh, we we saw earlier that strength is dunamis and translate as power. This word is um, really a word that expresses the idea of authority. It, it's Strong's number 1849. And, and so it has to do with the authority of Christ to do these things, to establish the kingdom of heaven, to establish salvation, and uh, so forth. And so um, God makes reference to the authority that Jesus possesses to do these things according to the Father's will. Now let's go on to the second part of Revelation 12, verse 10. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accuse them before our God day and night. And once again, we know this is referring to Satan, the devil, um, the serpent, the dragon, all all the names. We can add uh, another name to the list. He is the accuser. He's the adversary of God, and he's the accuser of the brethren. We uh, saw this especially when uh, Satan went before Jehovah in the Old Testament in the days of Job, and Job, God said, was a perfect man. In Job 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So God says Job is perfect. Now, first of all, we wonder how could God say that? And the answer is, the only possible answer is that he was made perfect through Christ, through the Messiah, that Job's sins were taken by the Lord Jesus Christ and paid for from the foundation of the world, which had already occurred. So it's not that Job must look toward this event. It had already happened. Already his sins were paid for. Already God had saved Job and applied that redeeming work, the the blood of Christ from the foundation of the world, to him, making him perfect in God's sight. Does it mean Job never sinned? No, it doesn't mean that. He was a man, he was still in the flesh, and therefore he certainly would have sinned at various points. But according to God, from God's perspective, he was perfect and upright 
because God saw the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord in the same way, just like every child of God is made righteous by the obedience of one, that is Jesus. And and so here is Job, one of our brethren, therefore, since he is a child of God, and and soon uh, when the sons of God present themselves, we read in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Jehovah, and Satan came also among them. And Jehovah said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered Jehovah and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And Jehovah said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered Jehovah and said, Does Job fear God for naught? Has not thou made a hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face. And there is the accusation. Job fears you because you've blessed him richly with all sorts of material things and and look how rich he is. And you, you've you given him all these things. Of course he's going to love you, God. But take them away. Put your hand upon him and he'll curse you to his face. Now that that's the accusation against one of God's children. Satan goes on to make further accusation when that doesn't work. And, and uh, according to our verse in Revelation 12, verse 10, this is typical. It's uh, what Satan was involved in day and night from the fall of man into sin throughout the Old Testament period. Day and night is a time reference that points to the motions of this world, the the uh, years that, that go by of, of time as history unfolds. Satan was constantly accusing the people of God to God. Here, here is a sin I see over here in this one. Here uh, is um, a wrongdoing this one's involved in. And, and you know, Satan was actually taking to himself a role that, that did not belong to him. Of course, that's not surprising. Uh, Satan is extremely proud and arrogant, and yet, he was assuming um, a role of judge. He was assuming the role of the law of God. In John chapter 5, in John 5, it says in verse 45, and this is the Lord Jesus that's speaking, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. See, Jesus is saying, I don't have to accuse you. There's already one that accuses, and that's Moses. Moses is a synonym for the law of God. The law of God accuses you to the Father because it's the law of God that you have transgressed. And every point of transgression, the law 
says you are guilty. You have broken the law. The wages of sin is death. It's the law that's the accuser of the sinner, of the wrongdoer. But you see, when it comes to the children of God, when when it comes to the elect, those that were chosen by God to salvation, the law does not make that accusation against them. But why not? How are they different? Well, let me rephrase that. The law does accuse these people, these elect people, and their sins, but the law recognizes that those sins were laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and that Christ paid for their sins, and and therefore satisfied the law's demands, or satisfied the law's accusations. Uh, wherein or as a result, the law has no more to accuse concerning these people like Job. And, and that leaves the individual like Job perfect and upright in the eyes of God. And, and this is where Satan comes in. Satan doesn't go to God accusing the religious or accusing the unsaved that are that are professing Christians to God. He doesn't go to God accusing the secular uh, individual. He he doesn't go to God uh, uh, making accusation against anyone else in the world that is unsaved. Uh, There's no need. The law of God makes that accusation. The law of God condemns them. And, And so Satan doesn't attempt to accuse them but it's only that certain group, the, those select individuals, those select people chosen by God, that that God has taken their sins personally upon himself as the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world and paid for them. It's that group that Satan goes and uh, to the Father, and or he previously did up until the point he was cast out, to make charge against them and, and to say they are guilty. Now we, we read in John 8, in John 8, we read of an interesting historical account of a woman taken in the act of adultery. And it says in verse 3 of John 8, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Now one thing we see, and uh, if you look up the word accuse or uh, accusation or accuser, you're going to find that often the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests were making accusation against Christ. And, and why is that? Well, because Satan is able to stir up his emissaries to accomplish his bidding or or to perform his bidding, to do as he would have them to do. And 
Satan, um, more than any child of God, wanted to find fault, wanted some error to be found within the Lord Jesus Christ, this Messiah. He, he worked overtime to find some misdeed, some, uh, wrongdoing that he could accuse him. And of course, not finding anything didn't stop Satan from making the accusations through his emissaries. And, and here they're bringing forth this woman caught in adultery because Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. That is the law of God, as we so in John 5.45, accuses the adulteress and the adulterer of wrongdoing and the charge is you have transgressed the law on this point and therefore you are guilty of death and you should die. And that teaches us of our, our sins that transgress God's law and we're involved in spiritual adultery. But the Jews know that the law is the accuser, and so they use the law in an attempt to accuse Christ. And and they bring this woman forth to him in order to trap him. If Jesus agrees with the law, fine. They'll stone the woman to death, and then they'll, they'll run to the Roman authorities and say that Christ has been involved uh, in a stoning, which is against Roman law, and they'll catch him that way. But if Jesus says, oh no, we're not to stone her, then they'll turn to the Jews and they'll say, we caught this woman in adultery, the law of Moses is very plain, look, it tells us to stone the woman and Jesus refused to stone her, he broke the law. So either way, they were going to make an accusation. It was basically a a perfectly laid trap. But of course, uh, you cannot trap uh, eternal God. And, and so it says in verse seven, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and rode on the ground and they, which heard it being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now this woman is more than likely... Um, actually, it's uh, very clear she is one of God's elect. Christ pardons her. He does not condemn her, just as we would read later in the epistle to the Romans in chapter 8. There is therefore now no more condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, because we have received condemnation through Christ in his death, And therefore, there's nothing more the law can do. There's not double jeopardy where we must pay for our crimes a second time, where we must somehow make payment to the law of God a second time. The law does not require that. No law of the land, as far as I know, requires such a thing. 
even from its subjects in this world. One payment is all that's necessary. Christ has made that payment. And here, men grabbed a hold of the woman and accused her, along with setting the trap to accuse Jesus. They they were trying to accomplish both. Accuse the brethren. The woman was our brethren because she was forgiven her sins. And the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is our brethren also. As Jesus said, who is my mother and sister and brother and so forth, but they that obey the will of God and, and observe it. And, and so, uh, Satan was very active here in his attempt to accuse Jesus and accuse this woman, and yet he failed. He constantly fails, except, uh, he succeeded when it came finally time for Christ to go to the cross. And, we read in Luke 23, in Luke 23, that there was um, the council, Jesus before the Jewish council, and, and then he was taken to the Roman authorities. But it says in Luke 23, verse 2, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. Of course, when you can't find um, an honest accusation, when there is no error, no fault, no wrongdoing, because you're uh, trying to accuse a, a perfectly spotless Lamb of God, you make it up. And that's what the Jews were doing, that he for, forbade to give tribute to Caesar. It wasn't true. When uh, he was tempted in that way, as the Jews attempted to accuse him, uh, according to what they're saying here, Jesus said, show me a coin whose image and superscription is on there. And they said, Caesar. And then he said, give unto Caesar or render unto Caesar. What is Caesar's? That's not forbidding to give tribute. That's actually encouraging the Jews to pay their tax. And here uh, the accusation is made before Pilate and Then uh, it says in verse 10, And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And they continued with their accusations before Pilate. And they were all false accusations. Uh, Their witnesses did not agree with one another. We read it in other places. And then in verse 13, And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, He hath brought this man unto me, as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. The, the, the accusations had no merit. They, uh, they were not justifiable. Pilate found Christ innocent of all accusations. And, and Satan, the accuser, who had certainly stirred up his emissaries in Israel uh, to make all these charges against the Lord Jesus Christ, was uh, disappointed. But since it was the determinate counsel, and for according to the foreknowledge of God, that the Lord Jesus go to the cross, yet 
circumstances dictated and forced Pilate's hand into finally crucifying him so that uh, he would complete the tableau and finish the demonstration showing forth what he had done from the world's foundation. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship's Evening Bible Studies. You can hear these studies Monday through Friday over PalTalk, Skype, eBible Fellowship's webcast audio, or over your phone. For more information or to hear other studies, visit www.ebiblefellowship.com. Until our next study, may the Lord's perfect will be done.